So one of the best things about being a parent is that you get to play with your kids' toys. And uh, one, of, one of the toys that we got or somebody got for our girls was this, this butterfly kit. Now, you've seen these before, I'm sure. But the way it works is that you, you purchase this kit and then you do a mail order thing and they send you some caterpillars. And then it takes a while, but they end up eating a little bit of leaves and some water and then they end up going through this, this process. And, and I loved this thing. I thought this thing was awesome. And, and part, of, part of the deal with it is that you can watch each step of this, this, this process, this metamorphosis that's happening. The chrysalis stage when you can see inside the cocoon. And then, then there's this moment where you can see the struggle that's happening with this butterfly that's, that's about to take off. Now, I, I enjoyed it so much, but as I'm watching this happen, I see the struggle. And now they're kind of like my little guys, you know? And, and so I, I see this happening and, and I really wanted to just take a knife and to, to help with the struggle a little bit, right? And just, just set them free, maybe a little scissors. You know what I'm told is that if I had done that, that that stretching process that the butterfly needs to go through is strengthening them, that if I had set them free without that struggle, then they wouldn't be able to fly. And, and I can't help but think as we're studying the book of Acts, last week we talked about the launching of the church, that the church is going to grow like crazy. God's going to do awesome things. It's, it's going to be beautiful to see how the church in Acts grows. And it's really an unstoppable movement of God. But this week, we're going to see a part of the history. You know that process with the, the butterfly? It was actually a bloody process. Like the, it, was, it was gross like the, to see it happen. Like there's, there's a struggle that's happening. And as Pastor Jim read these, these verses, you see a portion of the history of the church where when they say the name Judas, that, that their hearts would have been broken, not just because of his sad story, but because Judas was their friend. Judas, we're going to be told in God's word today that Judas participated in the ministry that was happening, that he had a portion of this. And so now when they talk about Judas, it's not just, oh, Judas, we saw this coming a mile away. Actually, it, was, it just breaks their heart, right? This is our friend. This was somebody who we loved. This is a story that breaks our heart. And what we're going to see as we study this, this latter portion of chapter one is that we're going to see that God's going to use this strengthening process for them to be reestablished and to prepare themselves. And it's always going to be on the foundation of prayer, that they're going to be people who ultimately have gathered together because they want to be a part of what God's going to do. And they're holding out for something that's going to be tremendous. And so in this waiting time period, they're, they're stretching and they're, they're going through this process of expecting that God is going to do something tremendous. I love to sign my emails this way, expectantly, that I'm anticipating that God has something more for us ahead. And as we watch this process unfold of the church moving from one stage to the next, that we see that ultimately God is glorified in the process. This morning, for this message to apply in your life, I want to challenge you to consider something that's so natural for us. And I've seen it play out in the lives of so many people that it grieves me. When we see this component of, jo of the life of, of Judah, Judas, we're going to see that the, he's a guy who was willing to set down something that was tremendous, the privilege to be a part of what God was doing, the, to be a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's going to sell that. He's going to compromise that for something that was pretty small. 
He's going to give up the best for something that's, that's kind of good. You know, we see 30 pieces of silver. They say that's about a half year's wages. So he's going to take something that he decided he's going to gamble on himself. And what he's going to end up doing is he's going to lose everything in his life because he chose to ignore God's best in the midst of compromising for something that was convenient, something that was familiar, and ultimately was a result of him giving space for the deceiver, the one who wants to steal, kill, and devour in his life in such a way that it, it totally did that. So we see the train wreck. Our hearts break with the church when, when we read these words because they're, they're talking about this moment in their history where they're excited. You can anticipate the fact that they expect something is going to happen. As Pastor Jim read in verse 12, then they returned to Jerusalem from the Mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John, James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and then Judas. They had to clarify which one because everybody there knew the story of Judas at this point. That the Judas that had betrayed the Lord Jesus Christ with a kiss was a tragic story that ultimately he would take his own life out of the shame and burden of the sin that he had allowed to enter himself to enter into. In verse 14, it says this, all these were, this is awesome, were with one accord. Literally in Greek, it means that they had one mind, that they'd unified themselves in such a way that they're partnering together. And you know what they were doing? They weren't strategizing. They weren't figuring out where the church building was going to go. They weren't doing things that were natural. Actually, they were doing something entirely supernatural. Did you see what it says? They were devoting themselves to prayer. And this band of people that had gathered together, they're going to call each other brothers and sisters. Some are going to be physical brothers. Some are going to be spiritual brothers and sisters. They're, they're a part of the family of God. It says this in verse 14. It says, together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers, and those Peter stood up among the brothers, the company of persons who was in all about 120. We guess that there are about 400 believers in the world at this point. And 120 of them are gathering together. Do you notice that Mary is in the room? This is the last mention of Mary in the Bible. Mary, the mother of the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and it's important to note that they were not praying to Mary, but they were praying with Mary, right? That there, there's this recognition that they're all anticipating what God is going to do in their midst. And they're excited. They're looking forward to seeing what God is going to do, that how he's going to fulfill his promise to the church. I love the unity. I love the diversity. I love the fact that there's men and women who are together anticipating the return of the Lord. And it's based on a foundation of them saying, Lord, what do you want to do? He was the one who was defining the battle plan for them. I, I believe in my heart that as a church and life in general, that we are better when we're together. We, we kind of live in a movie theater world right now. I, I like to, I, have you been to the theater lately? Like you don't just get your chair anymore. Like you get like a refrigerator and a lazy boy. And a, I mean, it's awesome, right? You get your own space, but you think of the movie theater experience. You go in, it's dark, right? You stay in your little space and you, you don't even have to, if you're like, I love going to the movies with my wife, but she's like, it feels like she's on the other side of the room, right? Because, but, but there's this, this 
ability for us to be in the same place, but not even to be together. I love, I love this, this image right here. Um, I want you to just take a moment and just make some observations in your mind about this picture. So, so as you're looking at this, I want to draw your attention to a couple of things. So as these individuals are rowing together, I want you to notice that they're not seeing where they're going, right? So the guy in the front, his name is the coxswain. It's kind of a weird name. But his job is to tell them, row, row, row. He's, he's going to tell them which side to pull on. And if he wanted to, he could ram them into the back of a cruise ship if he wanted to, right? He, he's the one who sees where they're going. And in so many ways, the, the church is at this point in the hands of God saying, He's a, like, keep moving forward. We're going together. We've got a destination that's in mind. And he's saying, row, keep rowing. We're heading together. But I want you to notice the difference between this and that movie theater image, that these guys are like on top of each other, right? They're, they're intense. This is, this is something where they're doing life together in a way where if you just decided you're like the third row back or the third seat back and the guy just decided he wanted to take a lunch break, how do you think that's going to work for him? And for, it, it requires everybody to be connected together, heading in the same direction. And I think what happens is through prayer, what happens in the early church is that they're aligned, that, that God's going to use this, this process of them depending on God to do something that ultimately leads them accomplishing something together that they could never accomplish being separate from one another. So different than this picture, in the early church, their diversity was notable. Their leadership was clear. Wait, wait a second. Did you catch in scripture that Peter is the guy who stands up to talk first to this group? Now that ought to shock you because the last time that we saw Peter in action in a meaningful way, it, it recorded in the New Testament, in the, in the gospels, Peter was going through this process where the Lord Jesus said, Peter, you are going to deny me three times before the end of this day. And Peter says, never, no way, not going to happen. And then he denies the Lord. He goes through this shameful process of rejecting the very call of God on his life. And then he's going to go through a forgiveness process where he's willing to be used by the God in a tremendous way. What we're told in the New Testament is that all of the individuals that were surrounding Christ at some level would, would fall away during that time period. And so now these 120 people are willing to forgive themselves. They're willing to obey the Lord. They're willing to take their little fishes and loaves and say, Lord, use me however you want to use me. And they're going to, in the text, it literally says devote themselves. We don't use this word much anymore, devotions. Uh, some of you grew up with that. It's this, this idea that I'm going to designate time in my life. I'm going to dedicate time in my life to to devote myself to the Lord. They're doing it. They're devoting themselves to prayer. And this relatively small gathering of believers are going to gather together in such a way that they literally are in one accord. They have a unified mind. They're with one mind. I like the way A.T. Robertson, Robertson puts it. He says, they stuck to praying. That, that prayer is going to be the primary work that they're doing in such a way that it's it's gathering together in the same calling to move forward in the next chapter of the building of the Lord's church. They functioned as a family. One of the, the sad parts about that story, though, is that, as, as Pastor Jim read this, that we hear the story of Judas. 
And this transition reminds us that, that not everybody who was a part of their family remained completely a part of the family. That there was a decision that was made by Judas that, that he was going to allow space in his life to be tempted in such a way that one of their family members, and do you catch this emphasis that this would have been a family member that they loved, right? This wasn't, when we read the New Testament, we read the early stories of Judas. Often when they talk about Judas early on, they talk about him like, hey, he was taking from money from the poor that was designated. That's after the fact. During the fact, these people didn't expect that Judas was doing anything. or They didn't know that Judas was any different from them. In fact, in the text, what it says, it says this in verse 16. It says, concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. You remember his betrayed kiss. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. He participated in this stuff. He got a front row seat. He was somebody who's a part of our family. And it breaks our heart. It's going to say in the text that, that this was the reward that he experienced was the reward of his wickedness. That he's going to cash in a check that's going to destroy his life. But we see this and we see in verse 18, it was described as this. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all of his bowels gushed out. That's nasty, isn't it? It's almost unspeakable. Some have tried to reconcile this with the, the accounts at the end of, of the Gospels, and it's important to catch that this is, this is the story as it unfolded. We don't know whether this was that once Judas had hung himself, that, that the branch broke, or that later on his body was left in this field, but what we know is that it was nasty. What we know is that this field was purchased, and it was purchased with the very money that Judas had decided that he was going to use for himself. It says in verse 19, and it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, Akeldama, that is the field of blood. It's important for us to remember, Judas experienced and participated fully in the life and ministry of Christ. It's important for us to remember, every person who's ever lived in the world has been given gifts by God. They have the choice to use those gifts to bring themselves glory, or to give glory to God. That's the best musicians you've ever experienced, the best leaders that you've ever heard of. And in this case, Judas was given a gift and he chose to use it for himself. He not only experienced the miracles and teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ, he probably participated in them. He had a portion of it. And you know what is helpful for me when I read this, when I think of stories in my own history and in the history of Hope Church is that no one really suspected him. It wasn't something that people looked back and they were like, yeah, that's Judas. He's just a matter, a matter of time until, no. But what we know about Judas is that he tragically never chose to fully surrender his life to Christ. He, he did something that we're warned against in the, in the book of Ephesians. The apostle Paul says this to you and I, and this is a warning to every person in the room. It's kind of easy to look at other people's failures, Judas, and say, ah, I can never do that. That could never be me. But what we're warned in the, book of, in the book of Ephesians is that we're called to not allow there to be any space in our life for Satan. You've, one translation talks about it being a foothold, like a rock climber gets a foothold that's established. So the, the word tapos in, in this 
this passage in Ephesians 4.27 is the word where it says, give no opportunity to the devil. Literally, that word tapos means give no geography to the deceiver. Like give him no space in your life. He doesn't get any territory in your world. And you think of the image of a foothold that, that once it gets into that part, he can build on it and establish it. So if we go back in time to Judas, what we know is that there was a moment in his history when, when he saw the money that was being given to the poor, he was tempted by it. Remember, temptation is not sin, but he gave in to that temptation. He started to keep it for himself. We get this little glimpse of the moment when, when the, the woman does this tremendously beautiful thing, does this, this tremendous blessing to the Lord Jesus Christ, breaks this expensive perfume and and, and anoints the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're told Judas is kind of there and he's going, well, why didn't they sell that and give that money to the poor? And what we know is that he was also thinking about himself, right? He'd allow temptation to take root in his life. And it, and it grew ultimately into the moment when Judas is going to betray the Lord Jesus Christ. He allowed Satan to have space in his life and the way that it's described in John 13, 27, it says, then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. He, he not just gave him a little space, but ultimately Satan is involved in this process. Jesus said to him, what you're going to do, do quickly. That text uh, reminds us later in John chapter eight, he says this about Judas, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning. He does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and he is the father of lies. This is a description, not of Judas, but of the deceiver. This is what Satan wants to do in every one of our lives. He wants to, for us to give him room for our self-destruction. Those 30 pieces of silver, half year's wages, were something that was valuable to Judas. But ultimately, that gamble that he placed, we're told in Scripture that you can't serve both God and money. They both can't be your gods. And what he did in his thievery is that he did something that was tragic. It says this in verse 21 of Mark chapter 14. It says, For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man has betrayed it, betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. What, what is important for us when we hear the story of Judas is that we don't just find ourselves going, how could he, what an idiot, I can't believe he was so foolish. But I think we have to be honest with ourselves and to say that that's inside of every single one of us. That there's the temptation for us to just give a little bit of space, a little bit of topography for him. And then that the deceiver ultimately wants to steal, kill, and devour in our lives. I, I can say pastorally, there have been, there've been dozens of stories that I've watched of people who I loved, who I've watched give up the best things. For some of them, their marriages, their families, their jobs, their influence, their ability to be a grandparent, their there's so many things that I've seen people give up. And you look at it and you say, they're giving it up for something that's so small. Almost that, that, that treasure of Judas's, the, the 30 pieces of silver, that it was, it was so empty for him that it was wasted in the midst of his suicide that he's going to do to go 
to his death. So, so what's, what's great about this, though, is that the guys who are in the audience, every one of these people at some level are coming back to Christ. And they're saying, we're in, we're gonna get this right. And you know what's great? I wanna read this statement because it helps me to think right about this. When some of the people that we love, when, they, when some of them fall away, it shouldn't shock us, but we love them, we pray for them, we remember them, we grieve their story, but we also keep moving forward expectantly, right? That we keep looking forward, that there's, there's a future. You know what's great? We, we, we've heard this story so many times. Like more recently, there've been individuals, some of these individuals on a public level are people that I care about, that I've known personally, some public people who've said that they've rejected their faith in Christ, or they've made a transition from I once believed in Christ. You know, you know what's great about that story, and I mean this, is that what's great about it is that some of those people are going to return to Christ. That, that history has told us that for some individuals when they've rejected Christ, that, that there's a time period in their future when they finally go, you know what, I'm gonna take this seriously. We've been saying this, and this applies to all of us, that, that when it comes to the message of the gospel in our life, that we have a lifetime, we have our lifetime to decide how we're gonna respond to the gospel. The problem is we don't know how long our lifetime is going to be, right? In Judas's case, he's gonna take his life and ultimately, he's going to be an individual that rejected the love of God in his life. But for some of us, we look at our kids, we look at parents, we look at grandparents, people who've been a part of our lives, and we say, Lord, would you draw them back? After the first service, I wept with a couple families that are saying, Lord, would you draw my kids back? And we pray that way. And sometimes he does. And so this story isn't just that we grieve the past, but when some fall away, we love them. We pray for them, we remember them, we grieve their story, but we also keep moving forward expectantly. You know what God was doing in the church is that even with this painful portion of their history, with this tragedy that was a part of their story, that God's gonna prepare them for something even more. I like the way that Henry Ironside put this. I think he put it very well. He says, when God is going to do something great, he moves the hearts of people to pray. He stirs them up to pray in view of that which he is about to do so that they might be prepared for it. The disciples needed the self-examination that comes through prayer and supplication that they might be ready for the tremendous event which was about to take place. They had to prepare their hearts. And you know what they were doing? Just like that boat. That, that image of the, the person that's in the front directing, that they're saying, Lord, we trust you. We're going to be all in. We're going to follow your leadership. And an excellent book by A.B. Bruce called The Training of the Twelve, he says this. He says, they're about to undergo a spiritual transformation to pass, so to speak, from the chrysalis to the winged stage. They are on the eve of the great illumination promised by Jesus before his death. The spirit of truth is about to come and to lead them into all Christian truth. It's awesome to picture that the church is at this point where it's about to explode. Remember, we're gonna read stories together of the Lord adding daily those who are being saved. We're gonna see the Lord using imperfect people to bring himself glory and honor. And he's gonna take these, these individuals who are essential to God's plan and give them the privilege to be a small part of what God's doing. They, 
they assumed that this more was going to involve all 12 disciples. So what we see in the text is this, this statement that summarizes how they go through this process. So I, like, I like to see the way that um, Luke in the book of Acts, as he writes this, views the Old Testament. In the passage right before this, he, he talks about the Holy Spirit empowering or using King David in a significant way when he taught the scripture. It says this in verse 16, brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David. They had a high view of scripture and they understood something that we believe wholeheartedly. And that is God's word is inspired by God, that the Holy Spirit is at work in and through the authorship of the, the Holy Scripture. And then they go on to study God's word together. And their conviction was that they believed that the Lord was going to return and that he was going to establish an earthly kingdom within their lifetime. And it was going to require all 12 tribes to be represented by 12 disciples. So they appoint this Matthias. It's a, it's a unique process. They cast lots and they select this new leader. And you might be wondering why we don't do this today. What's interesting about the history of the church is that um, in, in a few chapters later, we're going to see at the hands of King Herod, the killing of, of James, one of the 12 disciples. And, and James is not replaced in this way. They, they grow in their understanding of God's will in this history. The succession of authority is one that they stop reestablishing at this point. And what we see is that God's not just going to use the 12 disciples. He's not going to use the original apostles that were sent. He's going to use the whole church. That we are going to be his witnesses and we're going to be empowered by the Holy Spirit in such a way that in Brunswick, Ohio, 2,000 years later, there's going to be a church that strives to maintain the same momentum and story that was started so many years before. The plurality of leadership was reestablished. They're quoting scripture. They understand truth. They're committed to God's word. But it's important for us as we come to the conclusion of this message to, to ask ourselves the questions that are essential after a message like this. And that is, what area in my life am I giving topography into the deceiver who wants to steal, to kill, and to devour in my life? Is it time for me to say no more, for me to say there's no place for you because I know that there is a sin that can lead to death that can destroy me? For others of us, there's a, a recalibration to understanding how essential it is to have the Lord be the one who's directing us each step of the way of our lives, that he wants to be the leader. He wants us to depend on him in prayer and anticipation of his goodness, and he wants to use our gifts that he's given to us to bring him glory and honor. There's no better day for us to make that choice than today. And finally, I believe for some of us, as we grieve those family members that we cherish, that are precious to us, some who have rejected their faith, some who were a part of the faith that have now said that they don't agree with it. And for some, they haven't even expect, they haven't accepted Christ in their life that that we pray for them. We pray that God would do a work in their lives. And, and what we believe expectantly is that God has the ability to take every person, regardless of the depth of their sin, from death into life. Lord, we love you and thank you for your word. I expect and anticipate the fact that in our lives, 
that you who began a good work in us will be faithful to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. I pray for the appropriate hand of conviction for those of us who have allowed there to be space in our life that could allow the deceiver to have territory to steal, to kill, and to devour. For some of us, the sins of others in our past have destroyed us. It's been devastating. It's heartbreaking for us. It grieves us. And on a day like this, it's helpful for us to remember that even in the earliest church, they had to go through that with one that they loved, and yet they kept moving forward because you are at work in our lives. Lord, we love you. I thank you for your word that was established in the lives of imperfect people that you would choose to use to bring glory and honor to yourself. We consider it a privilege to be counted in that number. And we anticipate with a baited expectation of what you're going to do, that you are going to do awesome things in our midst. We love you. We thank you for this morning. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen.